welcome to uh, all of our covenant members, to our guests and friends alike, those who are able to be here with us and those who are joining us online. If you have your Bibles this morning, and of course I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, right after the book of Ezra that we got started in last week. Uh, thanks James Terrence, did a, a fantastic job setting up the book for us. As he said, our, normally we spend a good bit of time in uh, background and context, but coming right out of Ezra, uh, we've spent a little bit less time in this, and we've just jumped into it. And, um, but James did a great job setting it up last week, and we'll kind of revisit. Actually, where's, where's James at? If he's making back, we're going to revisit all four of your points this morning. So we got my 12 points and your four points. It's going to be a great morning. So, uh, so this, uh, I am excited about getting into chapter 2 this morning. So let's do this. Let us read uh, our text, which is technically Nehemiah 1.11b. So the very last part of 11, and we're going to go through verse 8 of chapter 2. So it says, Now I was cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given, to, given me to the governors of the province, to the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you again for today. We thank you for an opportunity now to come and to open your word. We thank you for Nehemiah, Lord. We thank you for the truth that is your word. And would you lead us and guide us through this text this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would you keep me from error this morning, Lord. And would Christ be exalted through this text. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, just to uh, put it plain to you, as we walk through these uh, eight and a half verses, if you will, or eight and maybe a quarter verses, uh, there's five observations that I would like us to uh, see that really will help us to kind of make sense of this text and will help us point, uh, point us to God's truth. And so just simply put, I'll give you these five things. There's no mystery. Uh, we're going to look at Nehemiah's position. We're going to look at Nehemiah's disposition. We're going to look at his prayer, his petition, and finally his praise. And so, as we kind of uh, unpack this, uh, this text this morning, let us first look at Nehemiah's position. So when you go to 11b, it's very clear what his position is. There's no guesswork needed. It says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So we know exactly what his role was in the palace. As he uh, is there 
um, as, as we saw him there last week, as we find him in Susa, the Citadel, where, uh, where James kind of set us some good context and reminded us of Esther, and that's where her setting is, and we know that's kind of the, the summer home, if you will, uh, of these Persian kings. Uh, and so now he is a cupbearer to the king. It's what we see his position. Now, what does this mean? It says, In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So we somewhat know what a cupbearer is. The name itself is very, uh, very, uh, has a lot of explanation in it, right? That it is one who bears a cup. So in the most simplistic definition, a cupbearer is just that. It is he who bears the cup. Someone who bears someone else's cup. The one who tastes the food and drinks the drink of the king. He is a, for lack of better words, a royal guinea pig. He is one who receives the food of the king before he eats it. He tastes it to make sure there's no poison. If there is poison, it's not good for the cupbearer. There will be a new cupbearer the next day. Uh, and he is no longer. Uh, but in, as we see in Nehemiah's case, uh, he, uh, he eats and drinks the food. And he is safe so that the king might live. It is because and these kings, especially these Persian kings, they have no shortage of enemies. There's no shortage of people who would like to see them no longer. And so they, uh, in a common way, especially in this time period, uh, to kill someone was through poison. And so a cupbearer's role in that regard was very important uh, to be the one who tasted the food, drank the wine before the king did. But a better understanding of this position of the cupbearer is one, uh, is one of the most trusted individuals in the king's court. The king daily placed his life in the hands of this cupbearer. And just like it is now, it was then, trust is not an easy thing to find. So you didn't want to have to just go through people because you had to trust this person uh, because they could also be the one. Hey, this tastes delicious. Now let me put some poison in here. So it's a very trusted position as multiple times every single day the king would place his life in the hands of the cupbearer. And trust is very difficult to come by. The cupbearer was likely not just someone who served the king as food, but the cupbearer would have been a confidant to the king. He would have had a significant position in the court um, and in a place at times to make positions, uh, decisions. Some would even say the cupbearer at times was involved in the political realm of the kingdom. So it wasn't just a servant of food. It was a confidant, a trusted person, someone who had the king's ear and who had a daily audience with the king. So Nehemiah was not just some food guinea pig, as it may seem when he says, I was a cupbearer to the king. No, he was far more than that. He was an established man of the king's court. He had a place in trusted leadership in Artaxerxes' uh, uh, reign. One that we'll see the king did not want to lose, as we'll see later on, uh, whenever he honored Nehemiah's request to leave for a while. And God did not establish this position of Nehemiah. And this is important as we think about Nehemiah's position. He did not establish Nehemiah's position just for Nehemiah's good, just for his prosperity, just for his name's sake. 
the Lord set Nehemiah in the place that he did. He set him in the position that he did, not just for his good, but for the glory of God. Because God had a plan that, uh, that didn't necessarily require Nehemiah. God could have done all sorts of ways, but in God's plan, he was going to use Nehemiah in a very specific way that he would do so by this Wherever you are, whatever position or place you find yourself in life, you do not arrive there on your own. God has placed you there. God has positioned you there. We say, John, you don't know the position I'm in. I am not a cupbearer. I am a guinea pig. I am a janitor in the stage of life. Wherever you find yourself, God has placed you there, and he has done so for a very specific purpose. Now, you may or may not have seen that purpose play out yet, but as we trust God, wherever we, wherever we find ourselves in life, we trust in Him that He has placed us there and He keeps us there until He's done with us. And there's great confidence in that for a believer. But before moving on from uh, Nehemiah's position as cupbearer, there are two things about this cupbearer position that points us to Christ that I would hate for us to miss. And the first is this, is that the cupbearer had access to the king. Nehemiah as a cupbearer, he had daily and frequent, oftentimes unhindered access to the king in which no one else could enjoy. So a cupbearer has access to the king. And turn me real quick to Ephesians chapter 2. If you think about Jesus being a better cupbearer, Jesus being the fulfillment of this. He is the great cupbearer. He gives us access to the king. Not only does he have access, he gives us access to the king. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, says this. And he came, talking about Jesus, he came and he preached peace to you, you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles alike, have access through him. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so we see that Christ has access to the Father. There's unlimited access as we know Christ is God. And he gives us that access for those who are in him. And not only does a cupbearer have access, but the cupbearer literally takes someone else's cup. The cupbearer takes someone else's cup. And go me to Matthew chapter 26 to see how Christ has done this for us, his people. In Matthew 26, in verse 39. We'll just start there in verse 36. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter the two sons and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you. And so Jesus was about to drink of the cup, the cup of the wrath of God, and a cup that we could not drink ourselves unless we surely die. And so Christ took this cup for us as the ultimate cupbearer. So yes, Nehemiah's position as cupbearer points us forward to Christ. And it's also a great reminder for us of how the Lord places his people in positions where he can receive the most glory. Secondly, not only do we see Nehemiah's position, we see his disposition. We see his disposition. So he says, I'm a cupbearer to the king. And he says, when he does, he takes up this wine to the king. 
at the end of verse 1, now I had not been sad in his presence. So he gives us that context. He's not a just sad person. You probably know people in your life who are just sad, right? If you called him right now and you say, how you doing? You know you just get this sad response. If you see certain people in your life, you know they're just going to be sad or grumpy or downtrodden. It's just how they wake up and how they go to sleep. Hopefully no one in this room is like that because we have the joy of the Lord inside of us. And so he makes it clear that he's not a sad cupbearer. Because the king says, or he says, I have never been sad in his presence. That's not who I am. It's not what I do. But in verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? So he could obviously clearly tell he was well, he was healthy, but he was sad. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And so he has two dispositions here. The first one is he's sad. Sounds like a simple word, right? But oftentimes, as we, if we have true sadness, there is much behind that. And so what is his sadness from? He's not sad because he's a cupbearer. He's not sad because he's in uh, Susa. He is sad for Israel. He is broken over Israel. Leaders, and this is what we're going to see in Nehemiah. As you think about leaders in the Bible, Nehemiah is almost always the top of mind. As you think about leaders, we're going to see great leadership in Nehemiah as we go through these 13 chapters. He's a fantastic leader, and the Lord uses him in his leadership. And so as a leader, leaders mourn for and with their people. So he, he is a Jew, and he gets words we see in chapter 1 of what has happened to Jerusalem and how the walls are destroyed and have been burned. So it says there in verse 3, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. The remnant there are in, in the province who had survived the exile. And they're in great trouble and in great shame. So the people are in trouble, they're in shame. The wall is in shambles. So he is broken, he is sad. And he hears this, and he doesn't just turn around and come to chapter 2, but from chapter 1 to chapter 2, uh, we see that in chapter 1 it's the month of Keslev, and now it's the month of Nisan. And so there's about three to five months that have elapsed between this time period. He has been sad and mourning this whole time. And then today, on this particular day, is with the king. It is very present with him, the sadness of what is happening in Jerusalem. So all this context we see in chapter 1 now comes full circle here in chapter 2. That Nehemiah has been weeping and worrying and praying for months now. He said, well, he's, if he's of the remnant, if he believed in God's sovereignty, he shouldn't be mourning. But yes, it is okay to mourn. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 15, mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Oftentimes, we, especially for those who really look to and trust in the sovereignty of God in all things, we fast-track mourning, don't we? We just fast-track. We almost flippantly proclaim God's sovereignty and we move on. And Nehemiah could have done that. Nehemiah knew that God was able and he could have just said, you know what, God's going to take care of this. I'm going to go about my job. I'm going to do what I do. God's going to take care of, of, of his people in Jerusalem. He's going to rebuild the wall. But no, he felt the weight of this. And he mourned and he was sad. And God used Nehemiah's sadness as an instrument to bring about his plan. So whether it's the sting of sin or the certainty of suffering, it is okay to mourn. But let us do so as those who have the hope of Christ in us. Because our mourning is not forever. Our mourning is not forever. 
So he was sad, and we're going to say the Lord used his sadness, used his disposition. But not only was his disposition of sadness, but also of fear. So we see Nehemiah is sad. And then it says at the end of verse 2, Then I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. So he was sad, and he was afraid. So why was he afraid? If, he, if he's this cupbearer, this cupbearer is this great position, and he has this authority, and he has this place in the, uh, in the king's court, why would he be afraid? Well, Nehemiah, his fear, it first shows his humanity because he had pl- plenty of reasons to be fearful. Because just as we say that believers should not, uh, should not never be mournful, there are times we should mourn, there are times we should be sad, there are times that we should be fearful and we ultimately look to the Lord and trust Him. But our humanity makes us fearful at times. It makes us afraid. Three particular reasons that he had to be afraid. One, Persian kings believed that their presence alone should make anyone there happy. That you should not be in the presence of a Persian king and be sad. So as he's in the presence of this Persian king, Artaxerxes, that by just the nature of him being there, he should be happy. And this king says, wait, why are you sad? You shouldn't be sad. I am with you. And I am with you always. That would be the mindset of a Persian king. And so he's afraid that his sadness is going to betray his respect for the throne. And that would not go well for him. Secondly, Nehemiah understood the conflict between what he wanted and between what Artaxerxes wanted. As we're going to see in just a moment, these two things are at contrast. He wants to rebuild the wall. He wants to continue construction in Jerusalem. And the king had already ordered it to stop once. And then thirdly, if what Nehemiah said caused the king to lose trust in him, he could at best lose his position and at worst lose his head. So he knew that although he trusted the Lord and although he, he felt like he was a trusted cupbearer to the king, that he was in the crosshairs here. And that what he said was very important and how he portrayed himself was very important. It seemed like for months he's been, he's been putting on this, this joyous face and doing his job well, but today he comes across and it's clear that he is sad. It's clear that there is something that's weighing on him. But Nehemiah did not let that fear stand in the way of his faithfulness. He did not let fear stand in the way of his faithfulness, as we'll see. And we likely will never find ourselves in the same position as Nehemiah, but we will find ourselves facing obstacles of fear in the way of our obedience to God. That is something that is not uncommon to us. And so what do we do? So I was very much afraid, he said, and I said to the king, this is the ancient Near East equivalent to with all due respect. I practice on my my dad quite often. I tell my dad something, I say, with all due respect, and I can feel I can just say whatever, right? He says, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? So with all due respect, King, why should I not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he gives them very quickly, very concisely, concisely why he is sad. Because he's thinking of home. 
He's thinking of Jerusalem. He's thinking of where his fathers have been buried. He's thinking of where his people are from. He's thinking of the city of God and the people of God. And they lie in ruins. The gates lie in ruins. And the people are, in, are, are ashamed. So his heart is heavy that day. So why should I not be in sadness? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? All right, what are you asking? What is your request? So he didn't, he didn't deny his sadness. He didn't uh, excuse it. He didn't just go on by it. He said, okay, I understand what you're saying. He's, he's clearly aware of Jerusalem and all that's going on in Jerusalem. So what can I do about it? The king says, what do, what do you want? And this interesting uh, last half of verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven. That's all it says. So we see first the, uh, the position of Nehemiah, and we see his disposition, and now we see Nehemiah's prayer. And all we see about Nehemiah's prayer is that right there. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He's in the middle of not just a street-side conversation, not just a, a, a simple conversation. He's in the crosshairs of this conversation with the king of Persia that he knows it could go one way or it could go the other. And the king says what he wants. So here's his chance to express to the king what he wants and what he desires to do with Jerusalem and going back to Jerusalem and being part of rebuilding the walls and being a part of God's people. So here's his moment to speak very clearly what he wants. And if he missteps with his words, it could be the end of his life. And he's very aware of this. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And do you think he said, let me get back with you, king. I need to just step in this closet over here. This is my prayer closet. You didn't know this, king, but for the past, you know, seven years, I've been, this is my prayer closet. No one else goes in there except me. I'm going to step in there for 30 minutes. I'll be back. He didn't have time for a prayer meeting. He didn't have time to go into the prayer closet. He didn't have time to pray it over and mull it over. He didn't have time to, to go to God's word and to seek it and to pray through God's word. It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now I came across this term that I've never heard and I thought I was dumb and so I've asked all of our elders and none of them have heard it and so maybe we're all dumb. But this term called an arrow prayer. And I'm going to give it to you just because I think it's interesting and I'll kind of give us a new term that, uh, that uh, even Ryan made up this morning. An arrow prayer. The term arrow prayer as it commonly is used in Christian circles, not my circles apparently, refers to a short quick prayer to God often in a moment of an urgent need. So you're in this moment, right? You're in this moment where you don't have time to, to pray about it. You can't circle back, right? You have to end that moment, do something, make a decision, engage in something, do whatever it is you're doing. But if you go on your own, you're going on your own power. But instead, he sends up a quick prayer to the Lord. So I pray to the God of heaven. Now, if you compare this to the prayer of Nehemiah in chapter 1, it's vastly different. When you go to Nehemiah 1.4 to the end of the chapter, it, it tells us in great lengths how he prays. And it's not a short, quick, concise arrow prayer. He is calling out to the Lord, and he likely continues to pray like that for the next four months. But now he finds himself here in front of the king, and he has to give an answer. But he doesn't want to answer on his own. He goes to the Lord even in the quickest of moments. So he prays. He didn't have time 
to pray long. But he gave this quick prayer. He did not want to not pray. He knew that it was essential. For this was a critical moment. And it's the one that he had been praying for for months. That the Lord would use him in some way for Jerusalem. And now his opportunity is here. Of course, I can't help but to think of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. That as believers, we should pray without ceasing. And so this is very similar, that he has a heart of prayer. Prayer is not just an activity we do. It's not just something we put on our checklist and our task list. No, I prayed this morning, check. Now let me go live my life until tomorrow morning I can pray again. Maybe you're super spiritual and you pray twice a day, right? You pray in the morning and you pray on the way home. Maybe you're like ultra spiritual, you pray at lunch too on your lunch break. That's not how believers encounter prayer. We pray without ceasing. So we're in this constant attitude and state of prayer. We should, we should regularly be in this conversational mindset with the Lord, just constantly throughout the day, thinking about the Lord and speaking to the Lord and praying to the Lord. And this is a moment where he is quickly saying, Lord, he distilled all of chapter 1, all of his, his heartfelt weeping and mourning, all of everything that he'd been praying for, for Jerusalem and for the wall, for the rebuilding, and for the people of God, he distilled it down in one moment. Help! Right? Have you been in that position? Where all you can do is maybe shoot up a word and say, Lord, help me! Because he knows he needs the Lord. Instant, quick prayers are essential for believers. They remind and reveal to us in a crucial moment in whom we trust. But quick prayers are not enough for the believer. We need to regularly come before the Lord in a way that we see Nehemiah do in chapter 1. As James said last week, as he summarized um, Nehemiah's prayer, that it was a prayer that had praise and repentance and appeals to the covenant nature of God and extols him for his aid. Those are heartfelt prayers of the Lord, and we should, believers, we should be all about that. But then at times we just look to the Lord and we say, Help. And this is what it's all distilled down to. As you see in verse 4, and the king said to me, What are you requesting? He says, Lord, help me. I'm about to answer this king. Help me. So we see Nehemiah's prayer. And let us too be a people who come to the Lord both regularly and quickly. Which brings us to Nehemiah's petition. What does he ask for? The king says, what do you want? What are you requesting? So I pray to the God of heaven. And then verse 5, And I said to the king, he asked for two things. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So he says, what do you want? And he first addresses him with dignity and respect. If it pleases the king, if I have found favor, if we have a right relationship, then please hear me. And the first thing he asks for is to rebuild Jerusalem. He says, let me go back to the home of my fathers that I may rebuild it. So he has to rebuild Jerusalem. And this is the same Jerusalem that you can go to Ezra chapter 4. Let's just go there real quick. Just one book to the left, right? Ezra chapter 4 and verse 21. Where he says, Make, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And we know what happens in Ezra. But there is this moment where the king ceases all the work in Jerusalem. 
And now he's asking him to go back and be a part of the rebuild efforts of what's going on in the holy city of God. So he's asking for something that is not necessarily something that the king of Persia cares about. He knows that. But it's also interesting as we go down another verse when the king responds to him. He says, and the queen sitting beside him. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him. So the queen is in the room, and they're, they're bringing some important potential context to the queen being there. Because he's asking Artaxerxes this, this petition. He's bringing this petition to the king. But he does so, and the queen is there. We well, say, well, the queen's always there, right? Well, actually, in the, especially the Persian palace, the queen was very rarely with the king in matters of the state. It was not typical in the Persian palaces for the queen to be present, unless two things likely or most typically two things if this was an elevated occasion and this could have been the situation this could have been a very uh, very specific meeting of the court and the king and all of his men were there and the queen was there because they were discussing very important matters of their kingdom could have been it or it could have been a more personal setting where this was dinner with the king and queen and the cupbearer was there before them but it's important enough for us to have in scripture to know that the queen is there Maybe she was an advocate for Nehemiah. Maybe she had this relationship with Nehemiah that she knew where his people was from and she had this soft spot in her heart for this cupbearer. And he knew that, that she would help in this conversation. Or maybe the king was more likely to address Nehemiah in a positive way if his wife was in the room, right? I'm a jerk if she's not in here, but if she's with me, I've got to be nicer to my cupbearer. Who knows what the reason? Either way, the queen's presence adds another layer in which God has sovereignly arranged all that is needed for Nehemiah to make this request to the king, this very difficult request. And so from a, the biblical account, the king immediately grants his request. As you see there, it says, what, what do you want? It says, if it pleases you, if things are good, then please send me back to Judah that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, his response was, how long are you going to be gone? Right? How long are you going to be gone and when are you going to come back? As we said, he was a very, value, very valuable person in the king's court, someone that the king could trust and look to as his confidant. So he was okay with him going back but he wanted him to return to the kingdom. And he had a quick answer, it seems. So how long will we be gone, and how long, and how long will it be before you come back? So it pleased the king to send me, and when I had given him a time, so he tells him how long it's going to be. Now, we don't know exactly what he said here. We know if you look at Nehemiah 2, you look at Nehemiah 13, we know it's about 12 years that he's gone, and he does come back to Susa. And he goes back to Jerusalem, so he kind of goes back and forth a little bit, so regardless of the timeline he gives here, he works out, he makes it very clear his intentions to the king. So he says, you can go with these stipulations on this timeline that you've given me. So not only does he ask him to rebuild Israel and he gives him a timeline, but secondly, to go with his authority. Because Nehemiah knows that if he just goes, okay, I've got my time off approved, my PTO is secured. I can leave here for the next 12 years. And he just takes off. He knows it's not going to end well. He does not need to go empty-handed or without the authority of the king. So we ask for a second thing. He asks to go with the authority of the king. So I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me 
given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And again, this goes back to the leadership of Nehemiah and his wisdom and his planning and his strategy. He needs something in his hand to get through the door so that he won't be killed along the way. So give me a letter that says, you've given me your blessing to go. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So he needs lots of lumber. So I need two letters from you, king. I need a letter for your authority that I'm approved on this trip and that I have your authority. And we're going to see him set as a governor over Jerusalem and also need materials to build. And we see God constantly in this re these return waves to Jerusalem that God is providing through secular uh, pagan kings the provision needed for the rebuilding of the temple. And we see it again right here. That not only does the king let him go, but he lets him go with his authority and he lets him go with his uh, with his provision. He provides for him. So Nehemiah knew that he needed more than just the freedom to return to Israel. He needed authority and he needed provision. And God sends us out to accomplish his work under his authority and by his provision. Artaxerxes, a king, had the ability to commission and provision Nehemiah's task. So how much more then does the God of the universe have the ability to both establish our work and provide for our work? You may say, I clearly understand the work of the Lord, but how is it ever going to happen? It happens through the Lord and His provision and through His authority. Because He establishes His work and He provides His work. So we've looked at Nehemiah's position, we've looked at his disposition, we've looked at his prayer, we've looked at his, uh, his petition, and finally we look at his praise because he gets what he asks for. He asks to, to be free to rebuild it. He asks for these letters of authority and provision. He receives all of this stuff. So this, this worry that he had, and going back to, to verse, uh, verse th 2 there where he was much afraid. And he's going through this now. He's asked the, the king this, this dreadful question about leaving his presence for a long period of time and, and, and building God's holy city. And he's navigated through that and he's made it through it by God's, by God's sovereignty. And he sums it up there at the end of verse 8. And he says, The king granted me what I asked. But he could have just he could have put a period right there, right? He could have just summed up the first part of chapter 2 and said, I got what I want. But he didn't. He said, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. God granted what Nehemiah asked, but he credited it to God. Here, Nehemiah models for us what, we should, all, what should always be the case for believers. Giving credit to God. Praising God for what he has done. Nehemiah could have honored the king right there. He could have said, and the king granted me all that I asked for. Thank you, King Artaxerxes. But he didn't. He could have honored himself. The king gave me what I asked for because I had strategy and a plan. And I've been praying for months. But he didn't. He gave the honor to the Lord where it belonged. He was joining in the psalmist who says in Psalm 29, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
Ascribe to the Lord glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So he's ascribing to the Lord His holiness, His goodness, His provision, His mercy. So yes, the king granted it, but it really came from the Lord. Paul points us to the same truth in 2 Corinthians 9.8 where he says, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, all things, all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So as we are about the good works of the Lord and the works of righteousness, it is the Lord who has blessed us to be able to do these works. It is God who is providing us all that we need to do what he's called us to do. The good hand of the Lord is upon us, not just for our good and our prosperity, but to accomplish his work and to do his will. So let us be mindful to be quick to praise the Lord for what he has done. Let us not first look to the goodness of others or to our own gifts or to our own skills. Nehemiah, often people, pastors and teachers go to Nehemiah to look at his leadership and focus just on Nehemiah as a leader. But our true leader is not Nehemiah, it is Christ. So let us look to him and praise God for what he has done. I read a quote this week. Don't write this down. Don't even want you to remember it after this. But it is from a popular pastor and author. If I said his name, almost all of you would recognize it. But this is what he said. He says, when you arrive in heaven, I wonder if Christ might say, because of you, others are here today. Do you want to meet them? And part of me understands the the heart in which that's written, and I don't want to completely demean that. But at the same time, that is terrible theology and a terrible understanding of our role in salvation. Yes, God uses us. He uses his people to share the gospel to proclaim the gospel, to call people to repent of their sins and turn to His Son, Christ, in faith. But there is not a single person in heaven because of you. And there's not a single person in heaven because of me. The entire population of heaven is because of Christ. So let us give God all the praise for what He has done, not just in bringing about works of righteousness and accomplishing His will and His desires, but for the greatest thing he has done, which is providing salvation for all of those who look to Christ in faith and repentance. It is God who's done the work. So in this story of Nehemiah 1-8, through we are reminded of God's sovereignty, reminded of our call to serve his purpose and importance of us trusting in his provision. Nehemiah's journey was... From a trusted cupbearer to a godly leader that God is going to use in amazing ways throughout this book. It teaches us the faithful obedience, the necessity of these prayers and moments of need, and the significance of praising God for all of his blessings. Let us imitate Nehemiah's courage and faithfulness as we encounter the challenges and life that come with doing God's work. And may we always give glory to God for what he has done in every aspect of our life. Let us pray this morning as we do so. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for an opportunity to to turn to Nehemiah and to, to see these truths from 
from his life. And Lord, Nehemiah would, would never desire us to look at him, but point to the, the coming Messiah, whom we know is Christ. And so we thank you for what Christ has done. We thank you that he gives us the courage to overcome fear. He paves a way through mourning and sadness. And that he grants all that is needed to accomplish his work. And that we be faithful to honor him and to praise him. Even as we sing this morning, and we do that, as we come to this communion table, that we remember and honor Christ. As we give, Lord, and we give because he has given to us so much that he has taken the cup, that he has been the cupbearer of your wrath. So help us to respond in faith this morning to your word. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.